Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's a funny thing, all this talk about trade and globalization. On the one hand, it's used to divide us, to create walls and differences. But in fact, it has been one of the most powerful forces in shrinking the world, in allowing us to move personally, not unlike goods and dollars, freely between nations and cultures. But even among the cultural homogenization of globalization, it has at its best allowed us to appreciate, to come to understand to the extent we can, how other cultures operate, what they value, and how they see the world. In the end, it should allow us to return home again, and in the words of T.S. Eliot, know the place we started, as if for the first time. In many ways, that's what my guest Frank Ahrens did as he journeyed to South Korea to change his life dramatically. Frank Ahrens was a reporter for the Washington Post for 18 years before joining Hyundai Motors Company, where he eventually became a vice president. He's written about his experiences in a new memoir entitled Soul Man, a memoir of cars, culture, crisis, and unexpected hilarity inside a Korean corporate titan. It is my pleasure to welcome Frank Ahrens to the program. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. And by the way, strong T.S. Eliot poll. He's my favorite. Well, very good. Thank you. (laughs) I guess the place to begin is, you know, what's a nice reporter for The Washington Post doing winding up in uh, the middle of South Korea? Yeah, what's well, a good question. Uh, that's what happens when you marry a diplomat. <laughs> My wife, Rebecca, and I were both at the Post, and she was applying to the U.S. Foreign Service when we were dating. And she said, listen, if I, if I get in, I'm going to go overseas. And I was covering the, po- uh, the Post company as a business reporter. And this was pre-Bezos era, before uh, the Amazon founder bought the Washington Post. And I watched the quarterlies, and I watched the revenue go down, and I watched the readership go down, and I watched my age go up, frankly. (laughs) And I knew that I had to make a change uh, in my career um, before I got too old. And, you know, many of us have faced this idea of of a midlife career change and a midlife life change. I had been a bachelor. And my whole life. And I just said, well, you know what? In for a dime, in for a dollar. And so Rebecca got posted to, she got in the Foreign Service and she got posted to Seoul, South Korea um, for October 2010. But we had several months before we had to go. And that gave us time to get married because we wanted to go overseas as a married couple. And for me to find this job uh, at Hyundai uh, through grace of God and a lot of phone calls. Talk a little bit about how you pursued this job in a company that really didn't have a lot of Americans working there. Right. So um, my job was head of global PR. So my team was in charge of Hyundai Motors public relations, media relations for everywhere in the world except Korea. There was a domestic PR team that handled that. And my predecessor was Canadian. Um, He had lived in Korea for some time and had been a journalist and been hired there. And he was retiring. And it's not atypical for global companies based outside of, of America and outside of the West typically in Asia, to have a Western face as their PR uh, person, their media relations, you know, outside-facing face. It's a bit of what we used to call window dressing, and it's the way things used to be. Uh, It is changing, I believe, as these companies become more global. Um, But I had a certain set of skills. Um, I was, uh, had worked at what Hyundai saw as a prestigious American newspaper and knew the media. Uh, I had a very good English uh, writing 
writing and editing skills, which are going to be important. And I was a Western face, and quite frankly, and that was part of it too. And so um, he, my predecessor was retiring, and I was, as Woody Allen says, 90% of success is just showing up, and I was going to be in Korea. And uh, as I said, it was really God's grace with the timing. Talk a little bit about being based in Korea. Certainly a num- many executives for uh, international companies, even automotive companies, wind up based in the U.S., in Southern California, where a lot of these companies have their U.S. headquarters. Talk a little bit about being based there in Seoul. Well, it was fascinating, and it was jarring at the same time. Uh, as a foreigner, had never having been uh, to Korea, never having been to Asia, I had this sort of a view of Korea of being sort of in the future, the way we used to think about Japan with the super fast internet and the, all the gleaming Hyundai and Samsung and LG products. And when I got there, it was that, but it was also this, as I write in the book, sort of an uppercut to the jaw. Uh, it was not a sterile culture at all, as I had guessed from the outside. It was gritty and it was smelly. There was kimchi everywhere, which is the national dish, and it was crowded. Seoul is the world's densest city outside of India. It's 12 million people there. Uh, traffic made uh, Washington, D.C. traffic look like a, a country a country drive. Uh, so it was very assaultive of the senses. And underlying all this was the fact that Korea is 97% ethnically Korean. It is the third most homogenous country in the world after North Korea and Japan. And so, and it speaks Korean. And there's a different social structure. They have Confucianism where we have this Western system. So it was um, I was a fish out of water in, in many ways, maybe something your listeners can identify with. Talk about the cumulative impact of it, because when you get in a situation like that, and I'm sure it was the case for you, and, and you write about this, it's very exciting at the beginning. It's very bright. It's very gleaming. It, there, there's all this going on. I mean, all the things, the litany of things you just talked about. But after a while, it has an impact in terms of how you react to it. Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, the the typical sort of expat um, expat experience of, let's say, an American going to live in overseas in country X is, you know, first six weeks, this place is great. You know, next six next six months, this place is starting to get on me. Next six months, <laughs> I got to get out of here. Uh, but then if you survive that, then you become much more acculturated um, to the way things are. It's just... I found one thing that surprised me, never having lived overseas before this, and frankly, never having wanted to live overseas, unlike my wife, who was quite the expat traveler before we met, was that I found that I could endure huge upheavals in my life, getting married for the first time, changing careers in midstream, moving to Asia, if I could just keep a couple tiny tethers to my previous life. And for instance, in the mornings when I woke up at 6 a.m. to go to work at Hyundai, um, I would uh, get my breakfast. I would drive partway to work, pull over on this bridge overlooking the Han River, which is very scenic, cuts through the middle of Seoul. And I would listen to um, uh, an ESPN sports podcast on my phone. Even though it was from the previous day, it was 15 minutes of tether back to my old life in, in, in America. So if I could have a couple of those little things, I could make it. You know, every time they make lists of the things that are stressors on on life, you picked almost all of them in the course of a very short period of time in terms of getting married, moving overseas, a radically different environment, Mm. and on and on and on. What toll do you you think that took on you after a while? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, I experienced, so the working hours, you know, I would, I would leave work at six in the, leave home at six in the morning. And if we didn't have dinners that night, work dinners, I would get home at let's say eight. If we did have work dinners, I would get home at nine thirty or 10. Sometimes when my wife was already asleep. Um, so, you know, so there was that, the extensive work hours, it caused me to put on some weight. Uh, it raised my tension level and I'd say frustration level as well. Uh, thank goodness it, it didn't have a cost on our marriage uh, as far as, I don't know, maybe you should interview my wife and find out, but <laughs> my, my marriage was really the rock, in fact, because we were both thrown in. It's like you're a new married couple and you're taken 10,000 miles away from everybody you know, and you either bond much more tightly or things go sideways. And thankfully, we bonded much more tightly. Um, so it had that happy experience, but it did take a personal experience, uh, some, some toll. And quite frankly, um, two years after I got there, right before I had to take a big trip, I had a really bad panic attack. I suffer from anxiety, uh, which is, I've adopted this sort of idea of, 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 um, you know, medicate the worst and live with the rest. And I keep an even keel, but man, it, it all just accumulated. You don't see it coming. And I almost wasn't able to make a key uh, business trip because of it. Mm -hmm. And so these things can accumulate. It's true. What did you begin to understand the most quickly about the dramatic differences in Korean culture? Well, that so in the West, uh, in America and throughout Western culture, we have pretty egalitarian person, individual oriented, horizontal kind of structure. Um, the best way I can think about it is my Korean tutor once said to me when I was in Korea, here in Korea, we teach our, our, our kids not to stand out. And I said, do you mean, she said, not to be outstanding. I said, do you mean not to stand out from the crowd? She said, that's right. I said, in America, we teach our kids to do everything they can to stand out from the crowd. So here in the West, we are individualistic. We have all these traits, uh, whether born or taken on, our gender, our height, our weight, our skin color, our success, our money, and we trumpet these things as our, individual, as, as our individualism. Look at me. And in a Confucian culture, um, we would call it conformity, but that's the wrong way to think about it. They think about it as harmony. Uh, who you are is defined largely by your relationship to others because it's so hierarchical. There is always somebody above you and always somebody below you, and you have a very complicated language structure to, um, to address them and where to fit into society. And so this is a 180-degree different way of looking at life and experiencing it than what we do in the West. And how did they accept you coming into that culture? So uh, I kind of blew things up, uh, like maybe my first week there, um, by saying, "Hey, you know, to my team, I had a team of eight or ten, um, eight to ten Koreans, of course, and and many of them had lived overseas and their English was good." I said, "Hey, call me Frank." And that just blew things up. That was a disaster because in the Korean workplace culture, in the Confucian workplace culture, you refer to your boss who's in a superior position to you by his title and his last name. So I would have been Esau or Director Aaron's. Um, but I was like, you know, egalitarian Westerner, hey, let's level this structure. Just call me Frank. Well, A, that can, it caused confusion. They didn't like it. And then it had the secondary problem of making some of them feel like they worked for a director of lesser stature than the other Korean directors who insisted on formal titles. And that made them and our team feel of lesser stature. So I had to correct that pretty soon. Um, you know, I bumbled into things. I read up as much as I could, but... Man, nothing, nothing prepares you uh, like splashing into it. Did you have to take up smoking? 
<laughs> right? You know, it's interesting. For Korea, many years, Korea was known as the smoker's paradise. Right. And still, when I last checked the, checked the stats in 2013 or 14 or 15, about 40% of uh, Koreans smoke, Korean males almost exclusively, as opposed to about 15%, 20% here in the States and dropping quickly. Um, it is, the, the Koreans are starting to see, the, understand the real health problems of smoking and the cities and, and country are taking some efforts to fight that. But it, it is just an, a na- kind of a natural complement of this incredibly competitive, um, high-stress work style that, you know, there, when I came to Hyundai, there were still smoking rooms uh, on each floor um, sequestered away in, in the office. Talk about what you came to understand about the automotive business in South Korea and in a broader context, how it differed from the automotive business in other parts of Asia and particularly from the automotive business in the U.S. Right. So, um, the way modest, 50, 50 years ago, South Korea was poorer than almost every nation, e- even in Africa. Uh, today, 50 years later, it's the 12th or so largest economy of the world. They have compressed 150 years of industrialization into 50. No other country's done that in modern times. And they've done it through this sort of relentless march of outworking everyone on the planet and very tight cooperation between the government through most of those years, a dictatorship showing favoritism to creating national champion companies like Samsung and Hyundai and and LG. And so that's how those companies grew. But Confucianism as uh, an organizing principle in society allows you to point a lot of people in one direction really fast and get them moving. And so um, Hyundai Motor began um, in 1967 as just one other company and the multi-company Hyundai Group conglomerate uh, making uh, assembling cars for Ford to be sold in, in Korea. And it wasn't until several years later they built their first car, then they imported, they took the baby steps, and they uh, were what is classically known in business as a fast follower. You know, how do we imitate what Japan is doing and get ourselves up to Japan? Um, and then they started improving their quality and improving their quality. And now um, Hyundai is taking this audacious move of trying to take the brand and its new luxury brand, Genesis, up market. So 15 years ago, they aimed at the Japanese. Toyota, Nissan, Honda, in terms of hitting their quality to try to be as good of a volume car maker as the great Japanese brands. That achieved, they are now the, their peers and, and, and their superiors in some. They're setting their sights on Germany. They wanted, Hyundai wants to be makers of world-class premium luxury cars like Benz, like Audi, like Mercedes. Um, that's the that's the industry. That's the Korean car industry. The other thing you need to know about it is it has been almost entirely closed to importers up until about ten years ago. Uh, like Japan, it was a protectionist um, culture that in order to grow the native car makers. Now, about 10% of all cars born uh, or uh, sold in Korea are foreign, are imports, and that compares to you know 40 or 50% whatever it is here in the states. Uh, but that is rising uh, in in Korea, and so uh, you know those are the dynamics that are underway with the Korean uh, with the Korean auto industry. How do they view the U.S. market versus other markets in the world in terms of their cars? Do they see the U.S. market as particularly important, as important to dominate that, to prove their success? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's the second biggest market for Hyundai. Number one is China, as you can imagine. Hyundai's going to sell about, I don't know, five to six million cars this year, and a million or so of them will be in China. About 800,000 will be here in the U.S., and the next after that is, is South Korea, about 600 or so thousand cars. Uh, and the U.S. market, even though it's not the world's largest anymore, it is still the taste-making market for much of the world. Uh, every automaker wants to do well here and, and, and grab the American consumer. Um, so absolutely. I mean, that's why Hyundai has a plant uh, manufacturing plant in Alabama and mm-hmm. Kia has one in Georgia. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Hyundai build a second one here pretty soon. So it is absolutely a crucial market. The Hyundai America headquarters is in Fountain Valley, uh, California. So absolutely. Talk a little bit about being in a, in a situation where you're an expatriate, you're working for a company that is competing aggressively against other American companies. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting uh, way to think about it. In some ways, I thought about Hyundai as being an, a, a part of an American company, simply that like 40% of all the Hyundais sold in the U.S. are made in the U.S., in Alabama. Um, and we had an American CEO, and Hyundai still has an American CEO here in America. Um, yeah, it's true, it's, but it's what you talked about in your, in your opening segment. It's, it's the global economy, and it's globalization, and it's an irreversible and, and I think mostly good uh, tide. Um, and I was loyal to Hyundai. I mean, listen, they, they plucked me out of, out of nowhere and gave me a job, a career, and a once-in-a-lifetime maybe experience. Uh, so I you know, remained, I was loyal to them, and I you know, worked for their interest and wanted them to do well absolutely what did you come to like best about korean culture there is there's a binary nature to other people in korea um unlike here in the states where you can have you can chat with a stranger in an elevator who you've never met and will never see again and you smile and make a joke about the weather you just don't do that in in korea if you don't know the person it's considered rude it's considered an invasion on their space on the other hand, if you meet a person through, you know, a correct channels, say business, uh, you exchange business cards, which is critical, or uh, friends introduce you, or you meet them in some other kind of approved social circumstance, after a night of eating and drinking, you are that person's brother. I mean, it goes zero to 60. And so while to the Westerners walking down the street, smiling at somebody on the street in Seoul and they don't smile back or you look down, you feel like they're being rude um, or they are, you're feeling excluded or, or, or kept out as, as a foreigner. That's not really the case. That's not what they're intending to do. And if you get to share soju with that guy that you just smiled at on the street that night, tomorrow you will be his brother. And there is this instant warmth and bond uh, and acceptance, regardless of whether you're Korean or not. How was it adjusting to that, to that sense of kind of immediate intimacy that's very different than the American experience? Yeah, I know. We have our personal space. It's funny. We're, 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 we, are, we have this sort of um, paradoxical view, right? I mean, we, we chat to elevators and the stranger, or chat to strangers in the elevator, but we don't, um, you know, we don't form friendships that quickly. We keep our personal space. So, I mean, honestly, it took a while. I mean, we, I don't know how many, um, you know, uh, doors I got slammed in my face by Koreans walking through them in front of me with me expecting them to hold them open because they were behind, I was behind them, but they didn't know me. So I shouldn't have had an expectation they would hold them open. I had to get used to that. Uh, things that felt like rude to me in my Western view of things, I had to readjust and realize they were actually behaving in a way they thought was not rude. 
When you were back in the States, when, not only when you came back for good, but, but even when you came back while you were working there, talk a little bit about the transition and the adjustment. Oh, man, it's just easy here. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I could get in my car and drive to a place where there was free parking and I could drive through a drive through and get a large uh, soda, you know, diet, diet cola beverage with ice in it. Um, all the street signs were in English. I could chat with someone in the elevator. It's just easy living here because it's our country. Um, but, you know, one thing I found very fascinating was every time I would come home, through Dulles Airport. When you come off the plane internationally, there's two lines to go through immigration. One of them is, um, is uh, citizens and permanent residents, and the other is foreigners. And I tell you, you know, if you take the signs away, you can't tell the difference between those two lines. It, just looking at them, you can't tell who's an American and who's not. And that was something I found very appealing. Um, being away from America and then coming back on my visits is what a... Um, uh, a diverse uh, culture that we are here and, and how that's a strength for us. What did you dislike the most about the culture there? Well, uh, I had a real hard time dealing with, um, with what we would consider the excess drinking. Uh, in East Asia, all throughout, drinking is just is the means to bonding with somebody. And so, for instance, I would go out with, you know, some of my fellow executives and our boss would go out for a drinking dinner. It's called after work, mandatory drinking dinner. It's called Weishik. And you go out to a Korean barbecue restaurant where they, you know, bring out the, the meat and it's cooked on the plate right in front of you. And that's fun, you know, sizzling coals and all that. Uh, but you bring out the soju, which is the national drink, the national liquor of Korea. It's about 20% alcohol and it's in a shot glass. And then throughout the course of the night, each attendee at, the, at this dinner is expected to rise and make a toast. Um, and, you know, by the end of the night, if there's 10 or 12 people there, that means you've had 10 or 12 shots of 20% alcohol. And I'm not a drinker, neither is my wife. Partly it's because of our faith. We're both Christian. Uh, and the Bible doesn't tell us not to drink and look at the Last Supper. Uh, it tells us not to get drunk. And so I just was not a bridge I could not cross uh, in order to fully acculturate. And at the same time, I didn't want to offend my coworkers, my, my host country. And so I asked for advice. And, and finally, I arrived at a solution with kind of the blessing of my boss that every time I would attend these drinking dinners, and every time there was a toast made, instead of downing the whole shot, I would take a sip of my shot. So uh, by the end of the night, I had one or two shots instead of 10 or 12. And but I was participating. And I was taking part in, in, in the important ritual. But that took a while to get to. Talk about the density that you touched on before and the level of noise and the level of activity and how, how you adjusted to that. Oh, man. I mean, my first day walking into the headquarters of Hyundai Motor, I mean, these are two. Hyundai Motor Group is Hyundai and then its sister company, Kia. And so it's two large, like 20-story towers with a big uh, glass atrium connecting them and a marble floor. And, and there's all these beautiful new cars up on stands around the lobby. And I walk in, and there are literally hundreds of Koreans streaming in around me at you know, six, seven in the morning or so. Um, and all the men are wearing dark suits and white shirts and you know, red or blue ties. And the women are dressed very similar. And I'm just like this rock and all these fish are streaming around me. And there's no one there to meet me. And the reception desk... Uh, no one there speaks English until finally one of my uh, co-workers who I'd never met, a young man, walked up to me, a Korean, 
And he saw how lost I looked, and he said, can I help you? I said, yes, please. So he took me over to the desk, and they called my team, and uh, we got it all set. And while they were waiting, he looked around, and he said, too many Koreans. <laughs> and I just was, you know, if, if you're a Westerner and you're new to almost anywhere in Asia, nothing prepares you for the density. You know, not New York, not L.A. It's just extraordinary. How has the experience changed your worldview? How has it changed you now that you're back in the States and back home? Well, uh, on a sort of prosaic level, I would say my emails are more polite than they used to be because in a, a Confucian culture, uh, honorifics and what we would consider in, a, in an email as sort of unnecessary small talk uh, are critical. Uh, and so, and I'm still kind of jarred uh, when I see a second reference to a person in a newspaper by their last name only without a Mr. or Mrs. in front of it. Uh, on a larger sense, it really came home to me. You know, we're always told as a kid, you know, oh, try to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Try to see things from somebody else's viewpoint. Yeah, but you don't really get that here in America because, you know, it's our culture. Go to another culture that is not only different, but is 180 degrees different, a way of looking at things. And you got to learn how to look uh, at things from another point of view. I mean, a story I tell is if you put a glass on a table between you and a Korean, a drinking glass, you're both going to see a glass but it's going to mean something very different to you. To the Westerner, it's going to, you're going to mean, oh, here's a thing that will soon provide me with a refreshing beverage. To a Korean, the glass will mean something that I must fill and serve to my senior at this, table, at this dinner table to show respect. And so you just have to understand the 180-degree way of different of looking at things. And it's made me open my eyes, really, uh, not only to try to understand how other cultures look at things, but how other people here in the States try to look at, you know, look at things. And, and we see that here in the States with, with so many issues are so divisive. And we just wonder, how can they not see things the way I do? But you put this hat on and you start to understand it a little more. Frank Ahrens, his book is Soul Man, a memoir of cars, culture, crisis, and unexpected hilarity inside a Korean corporate titan. Frank, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thanks so much for, for your interest in me and in the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you.